Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning. Beautiful morning to be in church, isn't it? Uh, Lightly snowing outside, coming here with the decorations and Christmas songs. Beautiful day. I do have one very serious announcement this morning. Um, We inadvertently handed out some of next week's bulletins. So if yours says joy on it instead of love, just disregard, okay? Yeah. Not a big deal. All right, we are in the book of John and continuing in chapter 11. So I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 11, and we are going to read verses 28 through 37. So as is our habit, would you please stand as we read God's word? John chapter 11, verses 28 through 37, the word of God. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, Come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. And uh, would you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful for the stories of Christ and his miracles, for they are more than stories, they are happenings in history. We come to our Lord who identified with our griefs and with our sorrows this morning at this Christmas time, recognizing that it's the loving thing for him to do, to come to this world and to identify with all of our sorrows, all of our griefs, even to take upon himself our sin. So we ask this morning that as we, we look at this word this morning that you have for us, that it would indeed be a word that is personal, just as this was to be a personal word to Mary. Lord, would you speak to each and every one of our individual hearts that we would know that you love us and that we would know how much so you love us. So we give ourselves to this task and we do so in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Come Christmas Eve, we will be singing the great song, Silent Night, Holy Night. And um, uh, the words of that song are are remarkable, and it is a, a wonderful time. The words will be up on the screen here to, I think it's a third verse, which says, Silent Night, Holy Night, Son of God, Love's Pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face, 
with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Christ coming to earth was an act of love. He was actually the love of God. Scriptures tell us that God is love and that we love because he first loved us. So the Son of God coming on that first Christmas morning, he was love's pure light. He was the light of love and radiant beams coming from his holy face because redemption was dawning with the birth of a baby. He was born for what purpose? To redeem us, to die in our place. That was an act of love. Last week, we we talked about hope. The week before that, we talked about faith. But where is faith and hope grounded? They are both grounded in the love of God. They, They first begin with him and his love for us. Otherwise, we would not in any way understand or know him at all. So we come back to the story. Last week, we left the story with Martha. And Martha had come to Jesus and met him on the road. And remember those words that she said to him. She said, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said this great confession of Martha. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then she goes to get her sister. She tells her sister to come to Jesus. And so this is the first thing I want us to see in verses 28 through 31. In love, Jesus bids us come and learn from him. It's a loving thing that he does. He loved Martha and he met her where she was. He wants to talk to Mary because he loves her, because he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. At the end of the story, like we saw, the people say, oh, how he loved him. That is what this story is about. Jesus loved this family and loved these people. And now he wants to talk to Mary. When she said this, when she had given this great confession, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So apparently there was some kind of communication between Jesus and Martha at that point. We don't know what it was because we don't have it recorded where he says, I want you to go get your sister. But apparently he said that. And she said to her secretly because it appears that, that um, they want some time alone together. Jesus wants some time alone with Mary, just as, as he had had time with Martha because he loved Martha and he loves Mary. He needs time alone with Mary to speak to her. Mary uh, says secretly, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. He's calling. He's saying, come, because he wants to show his love. He wants to console her. He wants to bear her griefs. He wants to identify with the sorrow that she's in. It might seem that at, at first glance, the story last week was about Martha, and the story this week is about Mary. But no, the whole story is about Jesus. It's about him. Just as the Christmas story is, is not about Mary and Joseph and shepherds, the Christmas story is about Jesus. And so this story is about Jesus. And so we, the, the, the players are incidental, but they are the focus of his love. And just like um, 
uh, Christmas. This is all about Jesus himself. So she calls him teacher. She calls him the teacher, which is instructive because rabbis, which mean rabbi, which means teacher, rabbis only taught men. So apparently he had been teaching Martha and Mary and other women as well. In fact, he taught Martha so well that her confession of faith that we just spoke of and we saw last week is probably the greatest confession of faith in all of the scriptures and all of the New Testament. This woman knew her theology. Where did she get it? From Jesus himself, from the teacher, the teacher. Why is, she, is he calling for her? Again, he wants this per- personal time. He loves her. He had things to say to Mary, just as he had things to say to Martha. And you know what that's like in a family when, when, when people are grieving or someone is about ready to die? There are things that you want to say. There are things that you want to share that come at a personal level that can only come at this personal level. And Jesus wants that with Mary. So, a couple of lessons just to begin with here. Christmas is the perfect time to come to the teacher and learn from him. This is the perfect time if you've been away from Jesus or if you do not know Jesus, this is the perfect time to come to him. Christmas is all about him. He is the teacher. He understands all of our griefs and sorrows. He is the one that we come to because he alone understands us. This is the perfect time to consider spiritual things. This is the perfect time to renew your heart. This is the the perfect time to think about life and death in love, in hope, in joy, in faith, because that's what it's all about. It's about him. But also, our lessons that he teaches us may be painful. We learn the most in times of trial. Isn't that true? You look back on your life, when did you grow the most? We usually grow when our faith is tested There are some things that he teaches us and he teaches Martha and he teaches Mary that he could not have taught them in any other way at any other time. And every grief that you go through, every trial that you go through, there is a specific lesson that the teacher has to give you. He wants for you to learn from him. And you can't learn that when everything's happy and everything is all prayers are answered and you're healthy. Those are other lessons, okay? That's a different kind of lesson. We can learn from him. But our deepest lessons are, are usually given in the midst of great grief. These are the time, these are the times that our faith is proved, right? Peter talks about that our faith is tested as in fire. He said, Don't be don't be surprised of the fiery ordeal that comes upon you as if some strange thing were happening. No, our, our, the trials that come into our life are given to us. And they're given for a purpose to grow us, to make us better, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And that is part of the purpose here for them to understand and to grow because he is the teacher. She could have just said, um, the master wants you to come or the rabbi wants you to come or the Lord She specifically says, the teacher. He is in a teaching mode. Over the years, um, teaching, or rather counseling uh, young people, uh, much of counseling is is teaching. 
much of counseling is telling people, this is the way, this is what God says. This is the way life works. And I know that you're troubled and broken right now, but let me teach you what the way is. Let me teach you what God has for you. Let me, let me show you what the teacher says to you at this time. And that's what he is doing with Mary as well. Also, our lessons will be tailor-made. You have lessons in your life. I have lessons in my life, and you, and you, and you, and you, and they're not all the same. They oftentimes have the same themes. We oftentimes go through some similar circumstances, but each and every one of us have a curriculum that is designed specifically for each and every one of us. Tailor-made. So when you go through a trial and you are seeking to learn something, you must realize that God has something specific for you. That means you have to be teachable. You have to be open. You have to be listening. Mary gets up and she goes quickly. She doesn't hesitate. She knows where the truth is. She knows where the solace is. She knows where the answer is. And she goes directly to that place that is a person, Jesus Christ. We must be responsive. We must go to him. We must listen to him. We must learn from him in these times. And he calls us to come to him, so come and learn. That's my plea to you. He bids you come. Just as Martha said to her sister, come and learn. Come to the teacher. He wants to meet with you secretly, personally, He says that to each and every one of us. Go, respond, come and listen. Matthew 11, 28 says this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Come to me, learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whatever burden, whatever grief, whatever sorrow, whatever pain it is that we bear, he bears with us, and he says, come, and I will share that with you. Come and learn, because he is gentle with you and he is humble. So, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. We were burdened with sin and its consequences, but we come to the teacher, and the teacher is humble and loving, and he bears those with us, but we must come by faith. Now, verses 30 and 31 are kind of a transition. John is a, is a great storyteller, and, and these verses uh, serve to heighten the tension of the story. And they say this in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. He came along the road somewhere. Martha came to meet him, and they talked for a while, and they talked theology, and, uh, and Martha made this wonderful confession of faith in him. And then apparently he says, go and get Mary. So she runs off and he stays there. He doesn't come to her. Um, he doesn't meet her at the house. He wants her to come to him. And he stays somewhere alongside the road. Verse 31. 
Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary, got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. That's what it would have been like during this time of grief and mourning for these many days. They go back and forth, back and forth to the tomb. Time to wail. The word weeping means to, to wail. And there were all these people that were consoling her, friends, perhaps other extended family, who had joined together with them uh, to weep and to console her. So Martha comes, and there is this intention that there is going to be a personal uh, a personal meeting between Jesus and Mary, but as you often know, people get in the way. So the people see her get up to go, and so, oh, we're going to, and they follow her. But that's okay, because Martha's going to follow as well, because once they are together, the next thing that we're going to see next week, the, the, the fulfillment of this story is the raising of Lazarus, and Martha will be there as well and all of these people. So the story builds because John is a great storyteller, and uh, she, she goes on to see the Lord. Now, the next part of the story in verses 32 through 35, we see this. In love, Jesus bears our every sorrow. Now, in love, Jesus bids us to come and learn from him, but also in love, he, he, he bears every grief, every pain. He carries that. For us, He carries that with us. Every difficulty, every sadness, everything that ever has weighed us down, He carries that. Why? Because of love. Because He loves us. And that's what the story of Christmas is all about. Verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw Him and fell at His feet. Notice the different posture between Martha and Mary. Doesn't, uh, uh, Martha didn't say anything about, uh, the story of Martha didn't say anything about her falling down. So to come and to fall down at his feet, and then it's going to say in verse, uh, verse 34, Jesus saw that she was weeping. So here Mary comes, she sees the Lord, she wants to be with him, she falls at his feet. I mean, who does that? And weeping. Through tears, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing that Martha said. Why? It's likely that this was the topic of conversation for days. They probably said it over and over and over again. If Jesus would have just been here, if he just had come in time. And they go do something and they have dinner and they get talking again. Oh, if he'd just been here. If he'd just come when we called him. Is it the same thing we saw last week? There is some hurt, perhaps disappointment, maybe anger, certainly regret. There's a regret that... Um, Jesus didn't come, because you can flip that away and you can, you can put it this way. Lord, if you, had, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. Not would have died, but he'd still be alive. Boy, that's something to think about for those of you who have lost loved ones, to think that they would still be alive if only this had happened. But this didn't happen, did it? 
if only we, again, have all the with only things. The first words out of the mouth of Martha are, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The first words out of the mouth of Mary are, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think that this was first and foremost in their minds? This is what they wanted to say to him. Even though, it's, <clears throat> even though it is not formed as a question, it hangs in the air like a question, doesn't it? Why? Where were you? Why do I have to go through this? Why didn't you do something when we know that you could have, but you chose not to? Things could have been different. But the stakes are high, right? The stakes are not like, well, in the late in the third quarter when we had fourth and one, if we'd just gone for it, we might have won. <laughs> no, had you been here, he would still be alive. The stakes are much higher. And you can imagine the, the depth of the disappointment of these women. They are, in, in some sense, wanting him to explain himself, aren't they? It's left hanging. They're searching for an explanation, the same that we want. Why? Statement is the same, but the posture is different for Mary because she falls at his feet and she is weeping at his feet. And she show, this shows the difference in personalities People grieve in different ways. God has different lessons for each and every one of us. Martha and Mary, even though their siblings are totally different, those of you who have two sons or two daughters, you know, people, you think that they're so much alike and you go, you have no idea how different they are, right? They are different. She fell at his feet and she, she weeps before him. And therefore we see the response of Jesus, which is monumental. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, so that's the picture, she's at his feet weeping, asking him this question. There are all these people standing around and they're all crying. In fact, the word for weeping here is, it's, it's an onomatopoeia, if you know what that is. It's kyo, which means crying. The, the, you, this, you can hear the sound of them crying out. All of them, when he hears the words, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he sees and hears them weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved is, is one single word in the original. It's hard to know exactly what it means. We do know this. He was emotional. There is some deep emotion that is moving him. The word is only used a few times in the New Testament, um, and uh, so it's, it's hard to, to really gain an understanding for the, for the handful of times, not a handful, I think three times. Um, it's used of when uh, the disciples, for instance, scolded Mary for uh, the, the costly ointment that she, she poured on Jesus. It's also used when Jesus had healed two, uh, two blind men and, and a leper, and he sternly warned them not to tell anyone. Sternly warned, scold. But the word originally means, uh, outside of biblical uh, language, or biblical Greek, it's used of a horse snorting. So it's a sound. In fact, um, the New King James Version may have it correct because it says, Jesus groaned within himself. He groaned. Have you ever been in that 
place of grief, some of you have, where there are no words. There's only this guttural, visceral noise that comes from deep within you. How do you describe what that emotion is? But this is our Lord. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, he is emoting. He is feeling. Because what he sees of the, the hurt and the pain that these people are going through. And he groans. Or he feels very, very deeply in his spirit. Not in the Holy Spirit, but in his human spirit. He's a man. A baby born in a manger. The incarnation. God with us. Emmanuel. He experiences all of these things in life. He experiences grief. His father died. You think he's not been around grief before? He's, healed, he's brought back from the dead two other people and they've seen the, the grieving families there. Grief would have been a big part of this culture and he would have seen this. And deep within himself, he feels this. And, and some think that this, he, may be, he may be angry as well. What would he be angry about? He's not angry with the people, if that's the case. What has sin wrought? What has sin done to these people? Look at the effects of sin and death on this world and these people. And he sees that in this world and he grieves. He grieves. The only other, one of the other times that Jesus wept is when he came into Jerusalem and he looks at the city of Jerusalem and what does he do? He weeps. Because he knows what is going to happen to the city. It's going to be destroyed and he knows it's all because of rebellion. Is he angry? He's angry at sin. He's not angry at the people. But he's angry at Satan and all that sin hath wrought. And he is deeply moved. He enters into their grief in a substantial way. He is the incarnate God. He came to identify with us in every way. In temptation, in joy, in happiness, in laughter. He got at the common cold probably. Maybe he, he, he got, ate some bad food and threw up a couple of times. I don't know. Stubbed his toe, hit his hand with a hammer. Was tempted in all things and yet without sin. He was in close relationships. He shared meals. He weathered storms. He experienced the death of a loved one just like you. He experienced it all to identify with us, to know what it's like to be one of us. What kind of love is that? Wow. Incredible love. The language is intense here. He's deeply moved. And it says he was troubled. And it can be, can be translated this way. He, he, he was stirred within himself. He was troubled himself. In other words, he voluntarily entered into this grief. He was always in control of his emotions, but it seems at this point he voluntarily lets go because it's necessary for him to identify out of love with these people. His emotion was appropriate. Theirs might have been somewhat ill-founded, 
but his was appropriate. He, he, he couldn't regret that he didn't come sooner because he had a plan. He knew what, he, what he's going to do. He wasn't second-guessing his choice. Oh, if I had only been here, things would have been different. Still, his emotion was such that he could fully understand the hurt and the pain of those human sisters and all the people that were around that were grieving. It was out of their control. If you've ever been in a time of intense grief, it's one of the most horrible feelings. Uh, it's, it's careening out of control. I have no control over any of this. And sometimes we have to embrace the full force of grief. Some of you have. All of us will at some point in our life when we lose the, the closest person to us or one of the closest people to us that grief just hits us in the chest it takes the, the it takes the life out of us the breath out of us we have to we have to embrace that and jesus embraces it with us this gives us an understanding of his humanity his love and his deep caring for each and every one of us it says in verse 34 where have you laid him? When they said, Lord, come and see. Why, why did he ask this? Where have you laid him? Notice he says, where have you laid him? Not where have you laid the body? Jesus wants to go to ground zero of grief. He wants to be at the, the place of grief that is the, the most difficult and maybe you've experienced it. I have many, many times. When there's something about going to the funeral home, going to the cemetery, being at the hospital before they take the body out. There's something solemn and, and human and broken about being there. Something solemn. We have a, a way of trying to distance ourselves from, from grief. The, the funeral industry, it's a great industry, but uh, um, we don't have many casket funerals anymore. Funeral versus a memorial service are different because there's just something about having a body here. It's different. Go to a cemetery. When I was stationed in Hawaii, I used to go to the Arizona Memorial many, many times for ceremonies, and, and every time I went, it was a deeply moving experience because you go out in that boat and there's this sunken ship underwater and the memorial's right on the top of the grave of 1,100 sailors and marines. And there you just feel something about it. It's solemn. And Jesus wanted to be there. This is an, a moving experience. And that's why we see in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But how profound is that? The Son of God coming back to judge all things, the creator of the universe, weeps because of the, the grief that's going around him. In fact, it can be translated this way. He burst into tears. He burst into tears. He couldn't take it anymore. The emotion was too great. By the way, men, this is not weakness. 
it's not weakness. Uh, we tell boys not to cry after they're 10 years old. When they're 10, they're so sweet, right? After they're 10, big boys don't cry. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's appropriate. And it was for Jesus, but it's not weakness. So it is a simple two words, profound. It speaks volumes of the ultimate man that he was. This is the part he came to bear with us, to experience with us, to identify with us. Part of the multifaceted nature of the incarnation. So some lessons. On Christmas, Jesus entered the world to bear our sin and bear our suffering. It's what the baby came to do. To bear our sin and to bear our suffering. To experience it with us, to participate in our sufferings. The incarnation, the baby born in a manger would grow up to experience your griefs, your sorrows. And he does. The next lesson tells us this. Jesus experiences our sorrow with us, and his grief is much deeper than ours. He experiences it with us. Hebrews 4 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Martha. That's Martha. And here's Mary in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may find, receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us. The word sympathize means he feels with us. Not just when he was on the earth, but now. He feels with you what you go through. In fact, he feels more when he was grieving at the tomb of Lazarus and when he grieves with you, he knows a lot more than you do. His grief is deeper because he knows all the, all the, all the causes, he knows all the consequences, all the grief to come, how wide and, and deep it is, and his depth of understanding and feeling is deeper than ours even. But he experiences it with us. Next, grief is not limited to death. So we're not just talking to people who have had loved ones who have died. It is all suffering. Uh, grief basically means a life-shaking sorrow for a loss in your life. A deep sadness that comes upon you because you've lost something or someone. Death isn't the only loss. You can lose a job. You can lose your home. You can move. Personal bankruptcy or some kind of business failure. Those with an illness. Those with a disabling illness. Those who have lost a limb. Who have lost their eyesight. 
who have lost their hearing, those who have lost a marriage, those who retire go through times of grief. When children leave the home, just wait, parents, or a lost love, people grieve at many, many levels. And you know what? He grieves with you. He feels it with you. He does. I do have a, well, I'll just say this. This week I was studying this and I was trying to think, well, how does this apply to me? And I was reading this and another passage and something occurred to me that um, some, some things in my life as a young man over which I was really depressed, really, really hurt. And I had never realized until that moment, praying about this, that he understood even then. I wasn't alone. He felt with me every bit of depression and whatever it was I was going through. You don't need to know. But I can tell you, he knows. And he knows for you as well. Something from your past, something right now, he feels it with you. I will say this, for those of you, this Christmas is a hard time when it, when it comes to having lost loved ones. We're always reminded of past memories. They were joyful at the time. Now they're bitter and sweet. That's okay. It's okay to continue to weep. If you find that you still weep, Years, even many years after losing a loved one, it is evidence that they have not passed from your memory. They have not passed from existence. Your love for them is still deep and abiding. And that is a good thing. Haddon Robinson, a great preacher, said this, Grief is part of life, and God has given us tear ducts to allow us to express our sorrows. Weeping, he says, is the language of the soul. And due to some miracle of evolution, it helps you feel better. Studies have shown when you cry and you weep tears, it makes you feel better. There's something that happens physiologically. And Jesus wept. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he knows your grief. So, in love, Jesus bears our every sorrow. And lastly, in verses 36 and 37, in love, Jesus gives what is not expected nor deserved. What he gives to us, what he gives in the book of John, what he gives on Christmas by becoming a baby is something that is not expected and is not deserved. Verses 36 and 37, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him, and yes, he did. I think they misunderstood some, but it is true that he loved Lazarus. But he also loved Martha and Mary, and he was moved by all those who were grieving but notice verse 37, there are some who had a different point of view. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And the expected answer is, yes, 
It's the same question, it's the same statement, but in a question form that Martha and Mary asked. Why, if he loved them so much, why didn't he do something? Well, he has. He would die for us. So that one day there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain. It will all be gone. They all recognize what he could have done, but this seems a bit accusatory. If he loved them, he should have done something. But what were they expecting? As always, some were expecting the wrong thing. A miracle worker. Do your tricks, Jesus. And their expectations were too low, right? Like we said last week, we need to raise our expectations. We don't want a miracle worker, we want a Messiah. Ours are too low sometimes. And Jesus, uh, our expectation that Jesus will solve all of our problems, that he's going to take away every hurt and give us whatever we want in this life, are improper expectations. Instead, he enters into our lives to go through us, to go through the trials with us, not deliver us from them, but through them. And then, of course, we have the ultimate deliverance when he comes back for us. But those who would come to believe would receive much more than a miracle healing. They would receive redemption, a gift of love that is not deserved. None of us do. And so a lesson. The greatest and most loving gift, the greatest and most loving Christmas gift is the gift of Jesus himself. We've already heard it this morning from Michaela. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. What what, what motivated him to give? Love. Romans 5 that uh, Doug read from for Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The entire context says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. For while we were yet helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through faith. How do you measure a gift of love? How do you measure the the love that you have when you give gifts on, on Christmas? Is there a measure for that? John Stott says there is a way to to think about God's love. He says, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the receiver. How much did it cost? He gave his only son. It's the only one he had. And what did Jesus do? He gave everything. If you have a billion dollars, $25 billion, and you give somebody $100,000, what does that cost you? It doesn't cost anything. But Jesus gave all that he had, 
Even as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus said. But what about our worthiness to receive the gift? In what we just read, we saw we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. And what does he give us? Love in return. We need a lump of coal. But he gives us his son. Only God, only the God of love could such love such people as us. And he does. So, we began with this, silent night, holy night. Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Love's pure light was born in a manger. He was God's gift of love to you. So all you need to know is this. He suffered for us. He suffers with us. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to know that he is with you. And he wants you to understand how much he loves you. Do you understand that? I hope you do. Father, we're grateful for the love that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Thank you that in your great love, you sent your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you laid it all aside and you you gave your very life's blood for us and now you suffer with us. And we thank you for that Christmas gift that lasts forever. We thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.